Bev Stoll is the former assistant of Noam Chomsky for over 20 years and the author of Chomsky and Me, a memoir. This is Bev Stoll. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Bev, uh, thank you very much for, uh, for joining me today. It's good to be here, Duncan. Um, so I had recently... <laughs> recently come across your name um, because you have put out a memoir called Chomsky and Me, and you were uh, Noam Chomsky's assistant for something like 20 years. Is 24. that 24? Yeah. Um, I, I, first of all, I'm just curious what I, I'm sure there are a ton of stories um, that that's two decades with someone who's, uh, you know, traveling all over the world, giving all kinds of talks. Um, what motivated you to want to write a book? Um, I'd say I really had no choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, After being there for the first few years, when I could finally put my head up and look around and say, wow, look what's happening here. Um, that was the point where I left graduate school uh, because I was burning out of psych studies and I, I wanted to save every child and uh, I was already trying to save every animal in the world. Now I wanted to save all the people. And I thought, I, I really need a break. So what better better way to have a break and feel like you're doing something but to work for Gnome or with Gnome and, and help him keep all those plates up in the air and, you know, get as many people in there as possible. So um, what made me write the book was I kept seeing these little things. Uh, sort of scenarios play out and I'd say, wow, who's keeping track of that? Or who's who's taking note of what he does when this happens? Or what kinds of people come to the office or what kinds of weird emails we get and even wonderful emails we get. So I decided I would be that record keeper. So I started writing my blog uh, and, and this book grew out of the blog. Um, number of the chapters in the blog, uh, I mean, a number of chapters in the book uh, were taken from the blog. And, and expanded, of course, and changed and edited. There, there's something you said in there that I thought was interesting um, and that you've kind of touched on, which is that this concept of burnout among people who are trying to do good. And yeah. it strikes me as, uh, I mean, did you, when, when you said you became uh, in part due to burnout, you thought that the idea of being Gnome's assistant would be, you know, uh, attractive in that sense. Do you feel like uh, that role like let you sort of take your foot off the gas just a little bit and sort of center yourself? Or, or was it, I mean, my impression was it, it would be pretty high octane, but I'm Yeah, curious. yeah, it, it really was both, ironically. Um, I always wanted to to sort of do something in the world that made a difference. And uh, when I had to back off of psych studies, um, I, I decided, okay, well, look where I am. I have a wonderful opportunity to do my job and and help other people, you know, approach Gnome or help them when they got there or manage the whole mess. Uh, because as you can imagine, there were hundreds of people every week writing us and, and showing up and saying, you know, can I have just a little conversation? Can I shake his hand? Can I uh, do a documentary? Uh, so I, that was a way that I could do something and not be too frustrated about my, my need to be there for people uh, without looking at the horrible stuff um, 
I don't, I don't know how to say it. I, I have a hard time, you know, watching kids get put into the wrong homes and stay in the wrong homes and all of that. Uh, so this was actually, it felt like I could do something. Uh, I felt like I could do something. Um, so it, it, it should have burned me out when I think about it because it was heavy. There were, there were times when the subject matter was very dark. I mean, anything that happened, 9-11, any war that was going on, uh, came straight to us. People contacted Gnome uh, with questions and concerns and, you know, Gnome, this is what I'm doing. Uh, what do you think? Am I doing it right to make a difference here or there? You know, we had a, he had a talk one night and there was a little boy running around with half of his scalp burned. Uh, you know, fun little boy had had a good time running around and talking with everybody. But this was what he had been hurt in, in, in a war. I don't remember which one at the, at the moment. But um, it was it it felt like meaningful work. So, oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, it's interesting what you said about uh, the working with kids and how, you know, pain you can bear. I, I remember something my dad told me uh, when I was younger of him, uh, some woman he knew who was a child psychologist. And she, you know, would talk about all, all these, uh, these kids going through these horrible problems and she felt like she couldn't help. And she said, uh, you know, I, I would drink a bottle of wine every night. And oh. it, it just seems that is something that, I mean, I, I can understand now that you've said that, how transitioning from that world to being uh, Chomsky's assistant, even though you are involved in a bunch of like fraught political issues, uh, yeah. would still be uh, a, a bit of a relief. <laughs> it was. And plus, I had Noam in front of me. He was on the, in the front lines and mm. uh, he was he had two daughters and a son still does. Uh, and. I felt a little bit like he protected me as he would a daughter. I mean, I'm just slightly older than his oldest. Um, and so I didn't feel like I was in it alone, obviously. He was in it. And I and I I do talk about this in the book. How did he do this 24-7? You know, what was it about him? How could he do it? And I asked him that question a number of times. How can you do this? Um, you know, and, and he answered me. I mean. There were several different answers, and sometimes he didn't answer, and I had to ask him again and just disguise it as a different question. <laughs> so he didn't think I was asking him the same thing. Um, but he, his, his answers varied uh, from, you know, what choice do we all have to, I just keep doing it. I don't, I don't think about it. Um, so that was always kind of you know, any little thing that I wanted to whine about just seemed so small, and he, he kind of. Kind of felt like a protective father type person. Yeah. Um, when you talk about uh, the the commitment, the level of commitment, and this is something that uh, I remember when I was, you know, eighteen in college and you know, young activist, not really realizing, like, like admiring a guy like Noam, but not really realizing what like decades long political commitments actually means on like your body and spirit it like that's the part that seems most um most like incredible about that guy and the fact that he doesn't really seem to have too much of like an ego i i didn't i didn't get like right, any right right you know? and in the academic world there are a lot of egos walking around and you know based on his 
credentials alone and what he's done in his fields, he, he could easily be one of those guys. Um, but that's, that's not really the vibe I got from him. Um, what is it? Why did you decide um, of all people? I mean, it, maybe it seems kind of obvious, but why did you decide you wanted to work for Gnome? And what is it about you that um, you think he was like, okay, this person makes sense for the job? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, at MIT, you can move around from job to job. And I have moved, uh, worked my way up. Uh, and I was uh, sort of running a, a grad, I was the graduate administrator to a, a program, a doctoral program, helping students, you know, meet all their requirements and write their theses and, and take all the exams. Uh, and I decided that at one point I really needed to go back to psych work and finish the master's. Um, and so working for Gnome was supposed to be easier. It was my easy job. It was, oh, I've heard of this guy. Isn't he like Ralph Nader? You know, I've heard something about him. I've been at MIT. At that point, I was at MIT 14 years. And uh, <clears throat> I had heard a lot about him. But I didn't exactly decide to work for him. I, uh, I, I hadn't even thought about this. But I, I applied to a different position to run a, a smaller graduate program there. So I could go to school and finish the master's and have some energy and they said, well, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I know who you are. I know your work. I really would love you to, um, to work in this department. But that job was, I just gave it away this morning. But there's this guy, Noam Chomsky, who needs an assistant. And I said, all right, well, um, you know, it was a lower position. So I thought, oh, good, even more time for me to, to, to uh, work on my studies. And, uh, and so there I was. And why did I stay when I got out of graduate school uh, a couple of years later? Um, I saw an extremely interesting environment. I saw a very committed uh, person who I'd never seen the likes of him before. He worked constantly. Uh, and also I liked him. I liked his personality. Um, I liked the way that we joked. I think in retrospect, he probably joked with me so much. He is a kind of a, a playful joking guy, believe it or not. And I think this is what keeps him sane. And it's certainly what kept me sane and kept me wanting to stay. I started to really like him. Uh, and the, Morris Halley, who was his assistant, I mean, his uh, colleague, sorry, um, another linguist in our suite, my assistant worked a lot for him. But I also got close to Morris as well. And and I think seeing these two guys and their commitment uh, and knowing their backgrounds um, and knowing the way that they lived their lives uh, was just so uh, such a learning experience for me. And I, I felt like this was the best education I could get. It was kind of my unintended 24-year MIT education. <laughs> what, um, when you said you stayed after graduate school, what, at, at what point did you feel like on a, in terms of meaningful work? Yeah. Um, how did you decide for yourself, okay, this is something that I want to commit many years to? Oh, that's, that's a really good question too. I, um, I, I struggled with that a lot. And, and I write about that in the book, you know, had I made a mistake uh, not doing, following my own work, uh, and instead staying to, to, quote unquote, help greatness, as many people put it. Um, and why did I do that? I did that because 
I had another life. I was doing a little bit of comedy. I was studying things, doing woodworking. I like to take up an instrument and learn that a little bit. And I was, I was still writing and I thought, well, um, I'm, you know, making enough money. I have a two family house. I was renting half of that. So I was a landlord and I was plenty busy. I'm also a mother. Um, and so I thought this could do, <laughs> you know, yeah. this, this could be enough. Um, at that point, how old was I? 30, 40, 55 or something, 50, 50, I don't know, 40, 39. I can't do math today. It's a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I stayed because uh, it was, it was interesting stuff. I was learning a lot. Like I said, it was kind of a free education. Um, and I just really enjoyed Gnome's company. It was wonderful when he was around. It's wonderful to see that there was hope in the world. It was wonderful to see that there were so many people like you and others and the people I, who did the AMA on Reddit and many, many others. Um, it, it was wonderful to see how much involvement there was, how much goodwill, how many people working to uh, try to improve our situation, or sometimes our dire situation. One so, of the things that I've noticed in just interviews with Noam is that he tends to veer away from any kinds of like personal questions. If yeah. someone, and uh, well, why do you think that is? Just he, he wants well, to focus I, I think, on matters? I think for two reasons, two very strong reasons. One, he doesn't want any of this work to be about himself. It wants to be about what he's saying. It wants to be about the truth that he's uncovering and, and highlighting. Uh, he doesn't want it to be about him. Um, and the other is that his first wife, Carol, was very private. Um, you know, she didn't want uh, she didn't want people talking about their personal life. And his after she died, he he has a second wife now, and uh, she doesn't she she wants the privacy as well. And I and I suppose he must as well. Sure. Um, so he's always honored that privacy of the family. I mean, it was a, it was delicate writing this book, and trying to be um, democratic, <laughs> uh, right. you know, and not and not not uncover personal things, private things, but to tell a number of you know more personal things uh, respectfully. So that was a balance, and I think that's why it took me ten years to kind of get this book published because I was I was just moving slowly at some at some points just trying to figure out how to do it best i mean i guess that makes sense i, I mean it does make sense but one thing that I, I really like about the fact that you've written this book though is that you do uh highlight uh as you said uh, greatness the human side of that and yes. and seeing that okay this is a, a person this is not you know a, just a, a political theorizing machine, um, not just a brain. What, I mean, it sounds like your impression of who Gnome was, was not uh, extremely strong before uh, you met him. But uh, I imagine you've encountered a lot of people who, when they meet him, are either like overawed or um, sort of like, I don't know. Or they, angry. They, <laughs> angry yes well oh was that common as well yeah <laughs> yeah um right I didn't know who he was um and 
I think that's one of the reasons, by the way, that I got the job. They told me they didn't want somebody who was fawning all over Nome. And I think they loved the fact that I wasn't a, a big, um, a huge Chomsky fan. I am now. <laughs> so that backfired. But uh, I think they they liked the fact that I could not be um, uh, let his notoriety get in the way of my doing the job I had to do. Uh, and as far as people know, yes, yeah, sometimes people would say, oh, my God, he's like God. He's like Plato. He's Aristotle. He's the, most, the smartest person in the world. He's so dedicated, devoted and all of those things. But then there were other people who spammed us with horrible emails that took days to clean up. Uh, and, and, and a lot of people in the middle sort of, you know, loved his, his politics or loved his linguistics, uh, mind or, you know, and, and, and all kinds of other, I mean, he goes off in all kinds of areas, right? Cognitive science, psychology, but the people who didn't like him, you know, it was, it was because of his politics. It was because he's a peacemaker and he wants democracy for everybody. And that includes, for instance, Palestine. And, and a lot of uh, Zionists would say, well, if you're a true Jew, uh, you know, and I feel uncomfortable talking about this because I was brought up Catholic, <laughs> but right. um, I did see this a lot. I saw a lot of people hating him um, for his politics, for his political views, and for not uh, forgiving the Palestinians um, their, their airtime as well. So. Yeah. Well, is that something that you noticed that he ever like got to him, like the, the hate, the hate? You know, when I first started working with him in 93, there was a situation I kept hearing about. People kept saying, well, I think the guy's name was Farazan, Farazan. I'm trying to remember and I don't want to misspeak, but there was somebody who had said that Noam was a denier of the Holocaust. And uh, Noam kept trying to explain that just because a Holocaust denier wants to be heard and Noam didn't, didn't say he should be shut up, Noam was really saying this guy has the right to freedom of speech no matter what he's saying, right? I mean, no matter what stuff is coming out of people's mouths, there's the freedom of speech. And that's what Noam was saying. Um, and it took me a while to understand this. Uh, but finally, he, he just told me I gave up. I gave up trying to clarify that. I mean, he spent hours and hours and hours of his life every week, every month, every waking day uh, talking to people who he felt weren't seeing a situation clearly. Um, and I think that was one of the first things I learned about him was that he had at one point said, you know, I need to I need to move on and I need to do the work I'm doing and not try to to fix that situation. Um, yeah. I hope that answered your question. No, yeah, totally. Um, well, that, that is the thing that I feel like a guy like Noam, because he is willing, one of the things he does is he answers emails, as I understand it, from like anybody who sends him an email, which. Yeah, if they were totally crazy, I then I took over. Okay. <laughs> or, or as right. Noam liked to say, my dog would answer, only he called the dog the cat. And the cat's name was Roxy. And he'd say, have Roxy answer this one. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, But like that, it's still, that's an enormous amount of mail um, mm -hmm. to, especially for someone who's as well known as he is. And, yeah. yeah. but it, it seems like when you're dealing with that volume of, uh, of interactions, it, you almost, I, I don't know, do you have to kind of like 
harden yourself a, a little bit emotionally? Uh, did he have to? I missed a few of your words, but did he oh. have to harden himself emotionally? Yeah. Um, hmm. Did he have to harden himself it, emotionally? It, I mean, I, I, I'm curious. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but it seems like when you have that many requests coming in, that if you gave each one their full emotional due, it could be overwhelming. Right, but, right. And I am not sure so much how much of it was an emotional uh, due as much as maybe emotional slash intellectual slash everything in between. Um, and I don't know how he steeled himself, but I do know that he is one person, and I do write about this a bit in the book, he and Morris both, his colleague, um, he no one put his one foot in front of the other, uh, no matter what. He just kept going. He kept saying, okay, well, I just have to keep going forward. And um, that's what he did. He was steadfast and dogged and just, just did it. Um, and I don't know that he gave it a whole lot of thought. In fact, I do ask him one of the questions I ask at the end, which I've asked him a number of times, but I finally thought I have to write him one more time uh, as uh this was about, this was maybe six months ago or so. I had been away from him for four years and we were still in touch. Um, and I asked him how he, why he did it, why he did something that so many people in his position wouldn't. And I, I can't tell you the answer because it's the last line of the book. <laughs> but he does answer. He does answer. And it, it was a surprise and not a surprise at all. Um, so, yeah. He just did it. He just, I don't think he could even tell you why, except he was compelled. He was compelled. He, he told the story. I remember when Marlo Thomas was writing a book, Noam was away, and she wanted people who were well-known to talk about what people influenced them when they were younger. Why were they doing the work that they did? And he didn't want to be a part of that book because he thought it was too much about himself. But he had told me the story um, that I know he shared with a few people but he was little, little boy in a playground. And uh, there was a boy who was being teased by other classmates. And um, Noam said to himself, I I'm not going to get involved, but I'm not going to hurt the boy. And the fact that he didn't get involved and go in and, and stand by this boy's side and tell the others to stop haunted him. And I think that he just had no choice growing up. Um, but to, but to deal with, uh, to make up for that, maybe in a way, you know, um, I mean, we all have something in our minds that, that compels us to go forward and do things. And I think that was the start for him. Yeah. I, I do wonder how much of that is like innate, if there's some innate moral sense, because I, I know a, a lot of kids, one, that question may not have even occurred to them. And two, if it did, they'd be like, oh, you know, when you're that age, it's right. not even a matter of intelligence. It's you're, all these social pressures and you're oh, God, yeah. being the, the run to the litter. And, um, right. and make so, fun of someone else before they make fun of you when you're yes. little. Yes. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And I think there's no doubt uh, what you said. There's just no doubt that there's something innate. Obviously, that could happen to a number of us or something similar could happen to a number of us. And maybe it wouldn't affect us the same way. But I think it definitely turned um, turned on a light in Gnome. Turned on a switch that was there to, for the for the turning on. Right. 
Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> At that one incident on the playground. Yeah. Um, was there anything about this guy that surprised? I mean, you, you've talked a little bit about like things that surprised you, but in the course of 24 years, were there things, you know, after, you know, year five, where you said, oh my God, wait, Noam just said what? He did this? Like, were there any, uh, did, did you feel like you got like a sense of his character early on or? Uh, um, boy, five years in. Um, I don't know what year it was. Maybe it was three years in when the Unabomber was uh, at large and sending bombs, bomb letters to people. Um, and yeah. I remember Noam, I said to Noam, he said, uh, we should watch the mail. And, and I didn't know that at the time until I got a call from a CIA agent who was very friendly. Gee, did Noam know the Unabomber? Did he know Ted Kaczynski? This was after Ted was arrested. And it turned out Noam's writings were all over Ted Kaczynski's wall. And so Noam finally told me, look, I have to add something. I can't make it look like I'm hiding anything, but Ted and I, Ted and I crossed paths when I was a visitor, I think at UC Berkeley. I uh, could be wrong about that. But so he had known him. He had met him. They weren't friends, but he knew who he was. Right. They knew one another. Um, so I remember people saying, he was saying, you know, be careful of the mail. And I jokingly said to him, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give each piece of mail a good vigorous shake when it comes in. Oh, <laughs> I thought, oh, this is pretty funny. Um, and he did, he did thank me often for my humor, but not that time. That time he said, you know what, we need to take this very seriously. <laughs> uh, and so I thought, well, you know, because he and I had sort of been developing this rapport. Um, and I was... Um, I said, okay, well, he's going to be very serious with me. So I guess I'd better be serious back and take it seriously. So uh, I think it surprised me every time I'd tell him, you know, like one guy came in, it's a very long story. And I think I told a shorter version of it in the book. I believe it's still in the book. Uh, and the guy was distraught and Noam wasn't in and I was by myself and he lifted a very heavy staple gun in the air. And he said, you look like you're afraid of me, Bev. He said, if 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 you if I were going to hurt you, I would take the staple gun and I would smash you in the head. And so I said, fair enough. I, I assume you're not going to do that. And uh, and he started crying and I, I had to back. He said, could I have some water? So I realized when I went up, got up and got the water that I was right near the exit. So I, I called him over, gave him the water, opened the door and ushered him out. And when I called Noam and told him about it, he said, um, I want you to get someone to escort you to your car. So I'm totally not answering your question. No, 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 no. That's, um... <laughs> but I, I guess I was surprised by to what level he was very protective. Um, I really was because I thought, well, he's so, so into his work. And I think he doesn't even know I'm there. I mean, I'm there and he's thankful and all of that. But then he'd sort of, all of a sudden focus and say, ah, listen, and he'd, he'd talk to me. And, uh, but I, I guess the thing that I, that I really loved, and it's something I actually saw from the very beginning was that he would appear to be somewhere else. Um, I, I had talked about this in uh, an article I wrote called Chomsky and me in the Chronicle of higher education. Um, but he, he came into the office and you could tell he was someplace else. And then I'd see him settle and appear and and 
and and uh, come into the room for for real. <laughs> it was almost like he had to come from a faraway place where he lived in his mind. And uh, that was always amazing to see. That was kind of the biggest surprise when no one was somewhere else. And I had to learn sort of how to get him into the room uh, to tell him something, ask him something, prepare him for the next appointment, ask him about some travel plan things. So I think that was one of the big surprises was knowing that he was two places at once. Yeah, that um, that one of the things that's that that I'm curious about the guy is there are a lot of people out there who have um, I, I forget who was talking about this, but a couple of different forms of empathy where one is on a very personal uh, interpersonal level, uh, the people you know in the room with them, their friends and family, uh, and another might be people who are strongly empathetic with the idea of humanity as a whole and who are working avidly towards helping humanity as a whole, but oftentimes on a personal level are, are not as warm and friendly. Um, there, and there are examples like Mother Teresa apparently was uh, on a personal level, was not as, um, you know, you said you were raised Catholic. I was raised Catholic too. So that uh, learning about this was, you know, um, it was fun. But uh, yeah. what about on for Gnome? Was he, it sounds like on a personal level, he was pretty uh, empathetic. Was he warm? I mean. Uh, That's a good question. Uh, they're all good questions. I don't mean to keep saying that. It's really my way of stalling while I think of an answer. Uh, was he warm? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I found him to be warm. Um, but I think there were many times when he couldn't, he couldn't, focus on the warmth. I mean, a lot of people will say, well, he's argumentative or he's this or he's that or he's gruff. Yeah, I mean, he's straightforward. Uh, so we're talking about a few different things here. Personally, uh, he's empathic to a fault. I mean, that's why he's doing this work. You know, uh, Fred Branfman wrote an article called When Chomsky Wept for Salon way back. He's since died of ALS, unfortunately. He was our pal, but... Um, he, uh, he wrote about Noam going to Vietnam with, uh, he was in Vietnam and he was supposed to be going home, but he, something happened with the plane. So he stayed another day or two or three with Fred and he saw uh, and talked to some people after the Vietnam War. And um, I wanna get my, my timing right here. Is it after or during? Well, it's in the article. And he cried at what these people had been through. Um, so yeah, he's, he's completely empathic, but if he lets that run his life, he can't do this work. Uh, one story I did ask him, how do you do this? How do you look this in the face 24 seven? And he told me about a story. He told me a story that wasn't about him. It was about this other woman that he was with. Um, Arusha Roy, I think was her name. She's a big, uh, a big, uh, activist in India. And he was in a car with her. And somebody came over with their baby and, and knocked on the window and put the baby up. And they were asking for money, you know, pennies, anything in the town center. And Noam looked at her and said, how do you deal with this? And she said, I have to look away or I can't do the work. Mm -hmm. And so I think he, that resonated very much with him. Not that he's looking away, but you can't stare at one baby and expect to help a billion of them. <laughs> You know, 
Yeah. That's a big, big number, but I'm saying you can't, you can't do right. that. You know, if you get stuck on those, you know, being empathic with each person, you can't be empathic for the larger good. Totally. Um, we're almost at 40 minutes here. Okay. Is there, is there anything, um, that in writing this book, you discovered about your, uh, this part of your life that, uh, you, you didn't fully realize exactly how you felt. Sometimes writing clarifies, you know, our thoughts. Yeah. Our... yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people say that when they write a book, they think they're writing about A, B, and C, but they're writing about X, Y, and Z. Uh, they find that out at the end. Uh, so my whole, my whole question working for him was, did I, did I make a difference to him? And did I do the right thing by me? Um, and I realized, especially, I made this the very first chapter too. There was a Sufi that came into our office. Uh, and this was, this was 2012. So it was almost, it was 19 years in. And I was still asking myself that question. Um, and I think at the end, I, by the way, I think I did figure out that I had done what I had done and it was good. And, and it's, you know, do we ever know, except in retrospect, whether we've made a difference and done the right thing in our lives, you know, everything's so, so clear, you know, 2020 hind vision. Um, but the Sufi came into our office and Noam took a walk. And so I got this Sufi time. I was so excited. And we were having this wonderful conversation and the Sufi looked at me and said, we feel it in here. And I said, what do you feel? And he said, kindness and truth. He said, and he looked at me and he said, I said, well, that's, that's wonderful. And he said, you, he said, this is your bliss. This is where you're meant to be. And I said, is that just kind of a Sufi thing to say? Or do you really mean that I made the right choice? You know, had he read my mind? You know, is this where I was supposed to be? This choice that I made? Um, and he he just smiled at me and said, this is your bliss. This is what you're, where you're supposed to be. So I said, okay, I'll, I'm going to run with that. <laughs> so, um, you know, there are other things that I, that I learned. Um, I think, I think I lucked out finding that job, giving, being given that job. I have to believe in the universe. I think I lucked out. Um, anyone else could have done the job. Could someone else have done it better? They would have done it differently. You know, was I the best person for him? I don't know. Uh, but I know what we did together. And I know that that I brought him uh, some, some comic relief. Uh, and I know that he felt that I had a sixth sense about me. Um, that he said, he'd always say, how did you know? How did you know? You know, he was lost once going to give a talk. And I found him wandering. <laughs> Because the, the, the taxi driver had sent him to the wrong address. So I, I found him not wandering. I saw, I saw him at a, at a crosswalk looking really harried, trying to, you know, get to where this was supposed to be. They had dropped him off a half hour away, half mile, I'm sorry, away. And uh, I saw him across the street. And he said, how did you know? How did you know I would be here? And there were, there were many times um during our time together that he'd say, how did you know how to handle that? How did you know, you know, uh, this or that? And, and so I, I realized as I was writing the book, there, there were a lot of times when my sort of sixth sense um, intuition 
was totally in gear in that office. And, and I love that. I think, I, and I think, I think, I think it helped me with my sense of who I was and with my self-confidence because I wasn't a very self-confident little girl. Um, you know, my parents weren't big on building us up. They were more like, oh, don't build her up. She'll get a big head. You know, I was in academically talented classes as a little kid. I was the top in my class, but I didn't know it. And my parents wouldn't tell me. And so, <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't built up. So he he built me up and the job built me up and my being there built me up. Um, it was also hard being at MIT because everybody's so smart and you feel so small. Um, but I was you know, could have great conversations with my brother who got his doctorate in physics there. So I thought, okay, well, I'm okay. Yeah. I'm okay. Bev, really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, the book is Chomsky and Me. Uh, is there anything else? Like you have a, a website or um, that you, you want to <laughs> let people know about? They want to check, check out more? Well, yeah. I mean, if they want a taste of my writing, they can look at the Chronicle of Higher Education article called Chomsky and Me. Uh, the book is available. Uh, it's Chomsky and Me, uh, colon, a memoir, obviously. Uh, and you can get it right now on the, this newfangled thing called Print on Demand through the publisher, which is at OR, like OR, books in New York. And uh, so you can only order through them right now. And, and I can certainly send you the link to that. Um, but if they want to uh, have the hard copy, hard, hard copy cover, uh, that hard cover copy, can I start over? <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, 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 no worries. Like I said, it's Sunday. Um, so if they want to have the hard, hard cover, I'm going to stay away from that word. Uh, they can. It'll be officially released in July, and they'll be able to get it at Amazon and the rest bookstores. Um, but right now, the print on demand uh, is a, a way to sort of save resources, and it's a smaller. Um, it's not one of the major, you know, four publishers, but it's a good one. And I wanted to go with an independent publisher, and this is the way they do it. So if they write to, oh, just get on site orbooks.com uh, and look up Bev Stoll. Um, they'll they'll find the book near the top and they can order it at 15% off right now. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and it should be delivered by the end of the month. They're they're telling me hopefully by Christmas, but they're just printing the books, so it will be the end of the month, I'm I'm sure. Thank you, Duncan. Thank you. Thank you to Bev Stoll and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time. <laughs>